we had not seen hardware being used as a weapon. Now we are. And we need to ask ourselves, where does that lead? Hello, welcome to a conversation on privacy, decentralization, and the future of our freedoms with Edward Snowden and Jared Hope. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Um, to start the conversation, um, I was wondering if, uh, Edward, you could tell us a bit more about your thoughts. Um, over 10 years ago, through your very brave and courageous act, the world found out about the uh, the the extensive and intrusive nature of global surveillance, including the mass collection of phone records um, uh, and internet communications of millions of people. Looking back, how do you see the evolving nature uh, of these threats? Um, what's your perspective of what's been happening over the past 10 years? So this is, you know, it sounds like a quick question, but it's actually a very long question because we have to consider what happened in 2013 and why did it happen. Uh, what I'm known for, of course, is revealing uh, documents from the United States government uh, and affiliated governments as part of the, the Five Eyes uh, sort of surveillance alliance, uh, which is the Anglophone countries, the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, uh, where they were, they had worked together uh, as part of a true real life global conspiracy. I mean, it's in their own documents. They've got names and meetings, and <laughs> uh, even logos and branding um, to try to monitor everything about everyone uh, to the extent that was technically possible at the time. Um, and what their justification was uh, in the context of, you know, they were saying preventing terrorism and serious crime, uh, threats to national security is the language that we're beginning to use more and more now. Uh, but, but really, it was this post 9 11 uh, securitization thrust, which was we need to see everything because we don't know what we're looking for. And of course, terrorists are everywhere behind every blade of grass, you know, and they're in your attic upstairs. And the only people who can prevent them from destroying uh, the world were our brave and trustworthy intelligence agencies. Now, they recognized uh, that what they were doing, frankly, was wrong. Uh, and so they got all of their lawyers together step-by-step, uh, step, uh, sometimes with legislators, uh, most often not, uh, particularly in the case of the United States, how this started originally. Um, they just said in the wake of September 11th, uh, the attacks, that there's a new national emergency. Uh, the old laws no longer bind us, control us, uh, are responsive to the threat. Uh, and so we're going to move in advance of legislation, start collecting everything we can from everyone, but we will only look at it uh, if we have a reasonable suspicion that this person is up to no good. So the idea is that they watch you through your whole life, all of your communications that they can catch, uh, and they argue this is justified, it's okay, it's proportionate. Uh, to the threat presented by terrorism, if they just pinky swear uh, that they won't actually look at your email personally because you're not a bad guy. But if you are a bad guy, they already have everything. So when you come to their attention later, 
whether it's three weeks later, whether it's three years later, whether eventually it's 30 years later, they have everything that happened before. So then they can wind back the surveillance time machine and see a perfect picture of your life, your private life, your activities, all human activities. See what paths you cross with, see who your affiliates and associates are. Uh, every purchase you make, everywhere you went, everything you read, everything you typed into that Google search box, uh, everything that's in your Gmail account, uh, <laughs> how long you scrolled and stopped on every page that has like you know, one of those little uh, Facebook analytic shims through JavaScript embedded in it. Uh, and, and this was the way it was going to be. But the public didn't know about it. The Congress didn't know about it. And the courts didn't know about it. And of course, it was illegal. Uh, I came forward, I revealed evidence of this, you know, they called me the worst names in the book, uh, a, a uh, you know, traitor, of course, they said I was a Chinese spy because I met with journalists in Hong Kong, then I left China and were like, oh, I guess not. Now he's a Russian spy. Uh, I was supposed to go to Latin America and then I guess they would have gone, oops, he's a Latin American spy. Uh, but the idea is just if, if someone says something that's uncomfortable for the regime, uh, that, that points out that they're not living up to the publicly professed ideals and aspirations that they are supposed to be working to defend, um, that person is the enemy. Uh, but again, how did we, we arrive here? What were the intelligence agencies supposed to be doing? Uh, the idea of the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, when they were conceived in the wartime and, and post-war periods, uh, was that they would collect as much information as was available either through human sources or through research, looking at newspapers, translating things, uh, that they could understand the general events of the world, uh, gist these, uh, produce an sort of assessment and analysis from that, uh, and provide these to policymakers that could guide their decisions on uh, basically uh, creating form and directing foreign policy, specifically foreign policy, military policy, uh, and and that would that would be it. That was that was the uh, point of it. Well, as the Cold War, did, uh, the idea that they would be limited to military and sort of foreign policy meant that their budgets would go down. Uh, Bill Clinton famously cut military budgets during his presidency. Uh, there was what's called a peace dividend. Uh, and everybody who was in charge there uh, was very threatened by that. The defense industry was very threatened by that. The idea that we didn't need the world's largest permanent military, uh, that we didn't need a gigantic network of allies who were sort of marching in lockstep uh, to, to spy on the world forever, um, created a counter-movement, um, so sort of counter-revolutionary movement within the U.S. government, where they went, well, how do we arrest this decline in budgets and influence and power for the military intelligence establishment? Uh, and so they created all these plans, all of these laws, all of these arguments. They went out on TV uh, to try to expand their budgets, to try to reclaim these lost authorities, to try to find new what they call lines of business for this great uh, sort of military intelligence bureaucracy. And they failed. Uh, no one was persuaded. Nobody thought they were useful. And then September 11th happened. Then we had a major terrorist attack in the United States. Uh, and 
the vice president of the United States, Cheney, uh, met with his personal lawyer, uh, the, uh, the White House counsel for the vice president called uh, Dick Addington. And they came out with a scheme to create this new surveillance. Uh, the Patriot Act uh, was launched, uh, which was already written, mind you, before the attacks happened. They just couldn't pass it. It wasn't popular. It was a violation of the Constitution. It reshaped sort of uh, the boundaries of the rights enjoyed by Americans. Uh, and the only people that it really benefited was this military conglomeration. So uh, all of these things came off the shelf. And in the moment of panic and in the moment of maximum influence for these intelligence uh, people, they basically had the success of the century. Uh, they began doing everything they wanted in secret. Uh, they reshaped the laws to permit what they could do publicly to some extent uh, through the Patriot Act and what was to be expected. But even that wasn't enough. Uh, they still continue to go beyond what the laws authorized, beyond what the budgets authorized, beyond what everyone authorized to do what they conceived of being uh, their new mission to do, which to keep, was to keep everyone safe from everything all the time. But that's only possible in a prison. And so that's really what happened. We moved from an intelligence uh, group that was analysis-based to then one that did targeted surveillance, foreign generals, uh, embassies, um, people who were suspected of crimes that when they had actually gone to a court and got them to authorize an individual warrant for, to then this new world of mass surveillance, where they try to capture everything about everyone just in case, so they already have it, because they go, if we don't monitor it, prospectively, we'll have lost our chance. That communication will age off. It'll be ephemeral. It'll be lost. But that's what we all had. That's what the internet had. That's the internet that I fell in love with, that I think you fell in love with, that we all fell in love with. The sort of chaotic internet that was not, you know, corporate silos and Gmail accounts, but it was little individual uh, janky projects and websites uh, that were ramshackle. They were unprofessional. But they were original, they were creative, they were human, they were inspired. And then they were lost. The website shut down, there was no archive copy, there was nothing there. Uh, your computer crashed, you lost your email spool, that's gone. Uh, there were bulletin board systems where we made friends uh, and we lost friends. The servers shut down or whatever. Uh, but the idea is that just like our human face-to-face -face communications, uh, these things didn't last forever. They were transient. They were lost with systems, just like memories are lost as people pass. Uh, and what we have seen since from sort of the web 1.0 uh, to the web 2.0 is this permanent record where nothing on the internet is ever to be lost because it has value to institutions to commerce, to corporations, and to governments, and to investigators. Uh, and that was the road to 2013. Now, the road beyond 2013 is where we've moved from mass surveillance that is happening, uh, but partially uh, imperfectly, uh, because it had to be formed so secretly. Uh, now it's being done more openly. It's being done more openly by uh, many different governments. It's being done, in fact, corporations now. Uh, you've seen blockchain companies just in the last month uh, that are starting to talk about how they're going to de-anonymize uh, crypto users who, without their consent, without their involvement or anything like that. Uh, 
to this the idea that now we're moving into a world where mass surveillance is not suspected, but rather presumed. Uh, and I, I think the question is, what lies beyond that? Uh, right now, people see it happening and they don't like it. If you do polls on this, it's not a popular policy, but people feel powerless to change. They feel like they can't stop it. Uh, and, and what lies beyond that? What will get people to actually change their behavior, uh, change their politics, uh, change their activities, is when the pain starts right now. It happens so invisibly that most people, even if they understand that it's happening in some way, uh, they don't understand practically what that means, what the impact for them is. Uh, right now, the internet is still front-loading the joy and back-loading the pain. We see the gates coming down with Reddit shutting down its APIs, with Twitter shutting down you know, the ability to freely browse, with Facebook trying to you know, take over the internet, bring everybody over to the news side with threads, uh, with the... Uh, SEC and the government's attempts to uh, monopolize finance that was meant to be permissionless on systems like Ethereum uh, through Tornado Cash, where they start to actually throw developers in jail for creating privacy tools and say, like, this is some kind of pro-terrorism threat or whatever. Uh, right now, that's still happening in a limited measure. But as mass surveillance uh, entrenches itself and becomes is everywhere, it becomes omnipresent. And eventually, inevitably, it becomes oppressive. You know it's there because the consequences become automated. Uh, you start to feel, you know, a, a ticket shows up in your mailbox uh, because a camera caught you. People have seen that for a while now, uh, and they don't like it. Uh, but again, um, and they just accept that it's the case because the consequences aren't that severe. And they go, well, that's breaking a rule. Uh, but the rules change. And the more you see this, uh, the more the chains start to weigh you down. But then, uh, you know, to avoid leaving us on the dark note here, uh, what is beyond uh, this sort of omnipresent uh, oppression? And I think that's where you get uh, resistance and eventually you get release. Uh, people move beyond that because they fight the system. We have people fighting uh, today. I, perhaps you and you know your project, uh, me to some extent that I can, uh, but a larger, wider community, everybody who's watching this right now, uh, they care about this. They recognize that something is not right with the system that we have today, and they want to see it change. Well, today that number is small relative to the you know human population, but over time that grows. They realize that we came from a world where this wasn't taken for granted. It wasn't presumed that this was happening. Uh, it was resisted. And just like uh, sort of there was an old day where we uh, presumed that there were nobles and lords and kings uh, that were above us, the uh, serfs, the plebs uh, that sort of lived in the fields. We changed that reality. And I think in time we will change that again. Very interesting. Thank you so much. So um, there were so many things um, that we'll try to delve into and discuss further. But before we get into detail, and I know you've mentioned this before, but for those um, viewers and listeners, um, and for those of us who are not yet intimately familiar with some of the details that uh, you've outlined before, I just wanted to hear why do you think people should care about privacy um, across the board? I know you've mentioned this before, but it'd be really interesting to hear it again. Sure. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a thousand different ways to to look at it, uh, but fundamentally, privacy is power. 
Um, if you have no privacy, you have no power. You exist under observation. Uh, therefore, all of your activities are known. Uh, they are predictable. And that means they're preemptible. Uh, institutions like this state, uh, because they have privacy. Uh, the government has a state secrets privilege. Uh, corporations have their own veils of secrecy uh, that are very difficult to pierce uh, because, you know, they've got locks and guards outside there. Uh, they've got closed rooms. They've got IT staffs. They've got security budgets. Uh, they know everything about what you're doing, but you know very little about what they're doing. Uh, when there's a scan, there's a long period of uh, investigation where even for governments, you know, it takes 10 years of litigation to get a fine that comes down on somebody like Facebook for, uh, you know, uh, uh, a state entity the size of the European Union. But then Facebook still doesn't pay the fine. They drag it out through appeals, appeals, appeals. Uh, and then it's 20 years later that you've got a final decision. All of the people who were involved in the initial decision are gone. They're retired. They've gotten their bonuses. You know, they're sitting on a beach somewhere. They're not going to be held accountable. And so this is the problem of privacy today. We are increasingly accountable for everything, for what you tweet, for what you like, for what you read, for how far you scroll, for, you know, that, the hashtags that you search through, um, for the people that you associate with, for the, you know, avatar that you pick on social media system. Uh, for your profile picture, you're being judged uh, not just by humans, but by systems. You are being made to live naked, transparently, before power that you are not permitted to possess yourself. As, so why are we, the people who are supposed to direct uh, sort of our governmental institutions to act in favor of us, why are we being made transparent? When we have very little power relative in, in terms of resources, in terms of executive authority, uh, we control ourselves. Maybe we have some influence on our families uh, and our labor, right? Uh, but those control uh, capital, uh, those control staffs who control teams uh, who yield real world power right now are becoming less transparent. Uh, that's why you should care about privacy, because privacy is power, and you're being told you can't have it. Uh, but the ones uh, who have all the money, they can. Uh, people just infer, I think, innately, even if they can't express, even if they can't articulate it. Uh, that's wrong. It is literally trying to disempower free societies and subordinate them to institutions. Well, I mean, it's, it's quite literally an inversion of what's supposed to happen, right? It's supposed to be like we, the people, and consent of the government. And ideally, the, the government or the state is supposed to be a service provider for us. Um, and in, in an ideal world, <laughs> we don't even taught. fear That's us. That's what we're taught, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Government schools. <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, uh, I think like when you were... You know, in your early twenties, you know, you you kind of recognized that you didn't have any politics of like, um or of your own ideas. I was wondering how that's evolved over the over the time, or like how you would describe your politics today. Yeah, I mean, the first off, like what you write on the internet isn't necessarily reflective of what you truly believe as a person. Uh, a lot of people troll. I've done more than my share of trolling on the internet, even now uh, on on Twitter. Um, but there is, I think, an important understanding that P 
people change, they develop, they have ideas that they embrace very strongly at one point in their life, and then they reject them, they move beyond them, uh, or they develop them uh, and extend them. The idea of this permanent record where people look up a, a social media post from, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you're like 18 years old, you're like 40 years now. Uh, and they say, well, this is what you believe. Like, no, I don't know that person. That person doesn't exist anymore. That person is dead. Uh, the me of yesterday is not the me of today. You can create some inferences from this, right? Uh, but they're not reliable. Uh, and when I think about my own uh, politics as they are today, uh, I've never been a, a, a creature of party. <laughs> uh, I don't like the Republicans in the United States. I don't like the Democrats in the United States. I think largely we have uh, a single party uh, system. It's just branded differently uh, because th these parties, they don't, are, they're in full agreement uh, that you and everyone like you, the people broadly, should be robbed uh, for the benefit of the state and their party and the sort of the cronies. Uh, who benefit from their uh, connectedness to the state. But where they differ, and they do differ, uh, is how the, the proceeds of the robbery uh, should be portioned and allocated. Um, and I think what that shows is a very developed system uh, where we've run around of a certain kind of game so many times that a metagame has arisen from it. All of the players in the game uh, they understand how they are supposed to act to benefit themselves uh, or sort of their tribe, their team, the most. And that has basically produced a system in which politicians, classically, famously, and throughout history in many different systems, uh, don't say what they mean. Uh, they say what they believe will benefit them politically. Uh, but if we have an inauthentic system, and that then becomes an irresistible system uh, because it has uh, such a delta in power uh, between the privileges and sort of authorities that the state possesses and the individual possesses. You've created a structural imbalance that weighs most heavily on the smallest in society. Uh, and, you know, that that's... Uh, <laughs> I think it's difficult to use political terms today because they've been so poisoned, nobody understands what they mean. But if we want to create progress um, in human well-being, uh, if we want to uh, promote and advance the common welfare of all people, regardless of what they're like, what they believe, how uh, you know they, they present themselves, whatever, what you profess to believe, uh, what you like, who you associate with, but just anyone, anywhere, all the time, right? Rather than spying all of, on all of these people, uh, how can we lift them all up? How can we sort of advance human betterment? Well, putting all of the weight on these people and then not distributing uh, sort of the benefits of that system uh, equally, that's entirely contrary to the stated purpose of our systems. Uh, and I think that should be uh, sort of... Corrected. So if you ask me, you know, what my politics are, I'd say they're the politics of a reformist, right? Uh, we need to fix a very plainly broken system. And unfortunately, that's not really a popular idea uh, right now. You, you see a lot of people, frankly, in a lot of countries uh, that recognize the system is not functioning well. Uh, but you see, they generally blame the other party. 
they go, my party's okay, but the other party, uh, that's that's the problem. If we just elect more of my people, things will be all right. Uh, but if you look at, for example, like progressives with Joe Biden, uh, <laughs> you know, they elected this guy uh, to office on a campaign where he said he's going to be the new FDR, the new Doom Roosevelt. Uh, he's going to create the new New Deal. Uh, we're going to have a more fair, more equal, more just society. And we're going to improve the the uh, influence of individual labor and collective labor uh, within the United States. And then with a few months of taking office, you know, he's banning strikes by, by workers on the railroads. And it's just like, if this is not evidence of a system that is structurally well, I'm not sure what is. Uh, but these anecdotes, uh, as they are, pile up and they continue to pile up. Like we've had Trump, we've had Biden, we've had Obama, you know, we've had Bush, we've had Clinton. You go back and back and back, like how many Bushes can you have? How many Clintons can you have? Uh, we seem to be going through the iterations. Uh, what we need is not a new politician. What we need is a reformed system. And if it won't uh, sort of permit reform, uh, then it should be erased and rebooted. <laughs> Factory reset politics, that's all at that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. On that note, I just wanted to bring in um, Gareth because there were some themes there which I think are really, really re relevant um, to our next question, which is, um, Jared, you've spent quite a lot of your time and resources and um you've dedicated the past few years into creating logos so can you tell us a bit about what the project is all about and also uh, why the politics matters I've, I've heard you talk about why the politics of this project is critical and it's important so could you please elaborate a bit more on that front yeah i, I guess like um you know uh, Snowden uh, saying that he's a reformist, um, you know, certainly like the preferable path, right? Because there is a system there. It largely functions aside from uh, this sort of relentless fever um, by taking the opiate of mass surveillance. Um, and I certainly hope that's possible. Uh, the, the question for me is, what if it isn't, right? And, and it really goes into to, to Snowden uh, saying, yeah, like how do we actually sort of reboot, um, you know, reboot some kind of governance system or create a just governance? Um, and in your in your book, Permanent Record, uh, you describe Tor, you know, the onion routing project, uh, and it was created by the states and ultimately became the best tool for uh, re resisting state surveillance. Uh, and that Tor was arguably more neutral than Switzerland. Um, and that neutrality uh, aspect um, really resonates with me because like uh, it's so powerful, like political neutrality is is kind of a prerequisite for a lot of our civil liberties, um, particularly when it comes to like, something like freedom of speech or uh, economic freedom. Um, and if you are able to create a politically neutral system, uh, then as a byproduct of that, you are kind of resisting political bias from entering into that system. Um, and the sort of technologies that we've seen, you know, from Tor and, and as they've evolved and developed around network obfuscation, um, we can start to combine that with other technologies that we've, we've also seen, such as public blockchains, um, decentralized file storage and messaging. Um, and 
if we can do that, we can kind of make these anti-fragile systems even more anti-fragile. Um, we can make them more politically neutral by, say, removing personhood. Um, if you can't identify uh, someone who's participating in that network and what they are um, putting through the service network, uh, then you 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 can get some uh, stronger guarantees. Um, maybe guarantees is a too strong word, but um, you, the ability to be able to create this sort of politically neutral platform. Um, and this kind of comes back to uh, a latent sort of cyberpunk dream, uh, which I think John Barlow probably put most eloquently in the Declaration of Independence in Cyberspace, uh, where, you know, in this sort of young internet that we grew up with, um, that had this sort of chaotic freedom and creativity, uh, we also foresaw that how like the states would fundamentally transform as a consequence of this technology. Uh, and we even foresaw the ability to uh, do create independence, um, view it as a separate political body. And, and so what, some, what this system can do is effectively uphold this uh, sort of cyberpunk phrase like privacy for the weak and transparency for the powerful. Um, and the way that I view a technology like this would be like a, a politically neutral voluntarist social order um, in which is capable of establishing a new constitution uh, that is partially written in code and uh, enforced by code, but also within the people who are moral and virtuous, ideally. Uh, and that this would create a strong foundation for upholding civil liberties, uh, not for anyone on the planet that's willing to participate. Um, but it's also really interesting because it gives you cheap exit costs. Uh, and if it's open source, it becomes forkable. Uh, and it's cheap uh, in terms of its exit costs because you have explicit consent whenever you're transacting or whenever you're interacting with the network. But you can easily just not transact or even fork away from that network and uh, if you have a different ideological structure. Um, and for me, this is kind of a way to restore, like, you know, the two institu uh, institutions that betrayed us, both the constitution and, and the internet. Um, and the other aspect here that I, I think, if you look into the future, um, is like, what does this imply, right? So if you did have this technology, um, you'd have to, like, well, before you get to that, you need to understand that, like, the United Nations and, like, the U.S. Department of Defense recognize cyberspace as a fifth domain of, uh, of conflict next to land, sea, air, and, and space. Um, and if you can deal with the sort of aspects of national sovereign claims over cyberspace, whether it's infrastructure or the people interacting with the network and the context of participation, uh, and you can uh, obfuscate that or remove this sort of political bias from it, then you start challenging this uh, national claim of sovereignty over these certain aspects of cyberspace, um, which I find fascinating as an experiment. Uh, and if, it is, if it's successful and you can do this for one, you can probably do it for all. Uh, and then you effectively have a terrorization of cyberspace and it may even have implications for world order as you would now be able to create a politically neutral medium for a rules-based order uh, and strengthen um, you know, uni uh, universal human rights while also allowing for vertical integration and uh, of rules through these nations and 
while allowing them to retain their sovereignty at the same time, because they could leave if it was no longer uh, beneficial for them. Yeah, I, I, I think if I can just uh, chime in on that, this is an extension of a sort of argument I have made for a number of years in the, the beginning of the uh, post-2013 period, which was, what do we do if states refuse to guarantee our rights? If they're actually working <laughs> with some intentionality even uh, to violate our rights, can we use you know math, science, technology to enforce rights beyond law? Because the idea is you know we institute governments uh, to create laws and to enforce laws. We are all presumed to have agreed to this social contract. We remove ourselves. Uh, the state of nature and kind of the Lockean uh, way where we can do anything we want. Uh, we, we try not to because, of course, we don't want violence. We don't want injury. Uh, but if we need to or we desire to or the urge is there, we can. Nothing stops us. Uh, we then voluntarily agree to narrow uh, those freedoms to that uh, which we have sort of said is a go and a no-go zone through this collective uh, exercise of the creation of laws. But what happens when the institutions that are meant to enforce and protect those laws uh, to keep back uh, sort of the borders of the state of nature are beginning to exploit the state of nature against us. They are intruding into the domain they are meant to protect. Uh, what do you do when the law fails? And as I said, you know, the hope is reform. You want to stop the bad behavior. But as you posited, um, what is the alternative there? And I think the question is reform or revolution. Uh, we basically have to be able to provide to states, uh, both individually and globally, right? Uh, because it's, this is not an individual, national problem. Uh, this is a global problem. And we have to go, which one of these do you guys prefer? Uh, you can either comport with the law, uh, and not just the law as uh, sure the government interprets it, but the law as the public desires it, the law as the public intends it, the law uh, as the public uh, wishes it to be, right? Why is the government here? You are here uh, to sort of express and defend the public will. Well, if you guys aren't willing to act consistent to the public and you're not willing to return uh, your actions uh, to comply with the public will, which is what happened in 2013, by the way, uh, they changed the law in a lot of cases. Rather than making the intelligence agencies comply with law, they made the law, the law comply with the desires and the activities and intelligence agencies. Rather than saying you guys are breaking the law, you all go to jail, or you know there's investigations, or you lose budget, or you change your programs to shut this down, which happened in very few cases, uh, shutting down the program. Um, but you know then they just did a different program under new legal theory. It, it doesn't really matter. It's not meaningful. Nobody went to jail for this. Uh, Instead, they said, well, we changed the law to make what they're doing legal now so they can continue to do it, which is precisely contrary to the public will. Uh, so then you go, if you're not willing to do this, uh, then we are going to either uh, reboot the government, <laughs> which is revolution, uh, or we're going to explore what's beyond government, which is what's really interesting. 
uh, about sort of the cypherpunk movement and always has been. Uh, can we create structures uh, that if universally, right, if not in physical space, where there's physical presence and physical uh, expressions of violence uh, that, you know, math isn't going to be able to do a lot to protect you from, uh, can we do it in the digital space? Can we do it in some space where we go, uh, the law is great and the law is there, but you don't need to trust the law because we can invent a higher guarantee of our human ideal, right? Uh, can we create uh, an enforced right to privacy that is not expressed through law, but through code, uh, a kind of higher law? Uh, and, you know, a lot of people, particularly institutions, uh, get lathered up about this. Um, and there are legitimate criticisms of it. Who's deciding? Uh, how does this happen? Uh, what happens if the code changes? Who controls the code? Uh, but that's where I think decentralization movement is so impactful, important, and frankly, just interesting. Uh, can we create that so social contract uh, expressed globally beyond borders, beyond cultures, beyond languages, where people opt into the network uh, and the network replaces within the domain of the network, its jurisdiction, if you will, uh, the guarantee of rights that it enforces through protocol rather than law. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, and, and to the point on the on the sort of law aspect and then like who changes the, the code, um, I, I think this is specifically why I use the term order, uh, because it's, it's very much concerned with the nature of the transactions happening and, and sh having a high assurance um, that those transactions were done in the correct order, at least as far as the uh, archive uh, or the blockchain is concerned. Uh, but on top of this order, we can then create new arbitration services. We can import you know, existing common law. Um, we can have a lot of the similar institutions. Uh, and if we do not get this sort of notion of reform, we may be able to create competitive governing services that starts to take away some of these institutions or offer a parallel service. And uh, if it is more competitive, it starts to become a forcing function um, if a state needs to, uh, wants to remain relevant or not. Um, but, and the idea of providing corruption resistant, uh, censorship resistant, stable institutions to anyone on the planet uh, and a plurality of them. So you no longer have like a one size fits all policy um, is just such a an amazing idea to me, um, especially in this world where like, you know, we have exit voice and loyalty when it comes as an ultimatum from Albert Hirschman when it comes to like uh, the state and we're seeing voice isn't really affecting the change that we anticipated to. And so uh, if we're not going to- Particularly relative loyal, to previous eras. Yeah. And that's the question. If you have these traditional models, but then the traditional models begin to fail, we have to iterate. Uh, we have to go, well, what's broken down? I mean, this is, again, what happened and with the mass surveillance thing. Uh, this was not possible under American law. This was not possible under the U.S. Constitution. And yet it happened anyway. Uh, Henry Kissinger uh, said famously, the illegal we do immediately. The constitutional takes a little bit longer. Uh, the idea is that, you know, uh, ultimately, when you're at the top of government or any large institution, uh, there is that will to power that determines ultimately what the limits are. It's a question of who will stop you. And when you ask who will stop, you know, the American government or any super state today, um, 
There are not a lot of very good answers unless you change the game. And that's what the network uh, is doing. It's creating a domain where government cannot control the network. This is where you see a lot of desperation happening right now in government circles where they are working and actually quite effectively, we need to be very careful uh, that they don't succeed here, uh, of trying to control the network, trying to control the spread uh, and from receivability of protocols and code. I mean, the tornado cash thing should have been a flashing red light for anyone involved in crypto. Uh, we recognize, look, if they go far enough, right, uh, and though you, our national laws uh, apply internationally, they apply globally, they apply digitally to things that are well beyond our jurisdiction, that don't touch us, that don't interact with us in any way, which there is no reason argument. Uh, they should be able to say, uh, we control the privacy of somebody on, you know, the furthest corner of the earth, uh, just because one of our bureaucrats didn't even pass a law. Uh, but, you know, I had some interagency regulation or something like that uh, that prohibits this. Uh, maybe we have to take our ball away uh, and, and stop playing with them, right? Uh, and that post-national idea that's beginning to be expressed through different formulations like the network state uh, it is really interesting because we have to establish or we have to consider uh, again, where did these governments come from? How did they come into being? What perpetuates them? Why are they here? Uh, the real answer uh, that we don't really like to reflect on a lot uh, is the monopoly on violence. They've got the guns, and that's what keeps them in place. Uh, but what if the guns, what, what if their uh, opponents can't be killed with bullets? Uh, what if the violence can't apply? Uh, they start looking for the, the cracks and the weaknesses. Where the human actors work, and they sort of lever the violence to try to have impact on these other things. Uh, but as you move further and further away, particularly when you uh, combine the resistance with the privacy and with the technology, uh, with the new law um, that can be applied and, and guaranteed, not by a judge, uh, not by letters on a page, right? Uh, but by math that is, to the best of our knowledge, uh, unsolvable uh, in practical terms, uh, that's an inabrigable guarantee. That's something that can't be terminated. It can't be uh, shut down. It can't be, you know, that they can't change the deal uh, or take it back. Nobody, nobody can. Um, and that is a good reason why you see these governments so alarmed, so concerned, and constantly talking about, you know, save the children or whatever. Uh, and terrorism arguments to try to undermine your privacy. Uh, the government is not stupid. Uh, collectively, you know, it makes a lot of poor decisions. But remember, individually, at all levels of government, there are people of different capabilities, and there are ex some extraordinarily bright minds in there. Um, they can see far ahead. They identify with the state. Uh, they are the state. Um, and the health of the state is psychologically the health of the person. Uh, that works there for a lot of people. And so they will see your resistance as an act of violence uh, against them, against their, their family uh, that they identify with. And this is, we, we have to be careful uh, to sort of avoid a conflict that we can't win until we've already won it. Um, I think if we are clever in a lot of ways, uh, we recognize that there is a future here that has yet to be imagined 
but can already be reached in, in parts, uh, not completely. And again, we do want human recourse. We do want human judgment. Uh, we do want uh, some level of human authority that can be institutionalized uh, for arbitration and remediation. It's not that there's no role for government, uh, but we have to recognize where government has slipped the leash uh, and sort of gone beyond the role that it's entrusted with, that it's invested with, uh, how we can return it where possible, where we can forbid it where it's not, uh, and where we can make sure, again, the, the bottom line is, why are we doing all of this? Uh, we're doing this to make life better for our generations and the one that's come next. But if we focus on that, uh, it doesn't really matter <laughs> who's aligned against us. Uh, it's a contest for the future. And frankly, I think the many will always win against the few. Uh, and the institutionalists, frankly, are the few. Uh, even when you think in terms of like, you know, cyberpunks are a small tribe, and it, it's true. Uh, but the popularity of these policies uh, by the institutions uh, is not high. Uh, the supporters are uh, smaller uh, than the resistors, and that is trend will continue. Uh, and I think as you have more young people who want to pursue this, who want to explore this, uh, and who want to change the system, uh, ultimately in time they will. But you still got to worry about the guns and the violence. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I think that's why I kind of uh, view revolution as maybe a, it is revolutionary, but the nature of the revolution doesn't necessarily require bloodshed uh, because it is a peaceful opting out in many ways. And there's ways that we can deploy this technology um, that's compatible. Um, in these sort of, at least in the early stages. So, so the way that I view um, the sort of tech stack that I'm describing uh, as a sort of governance operating system, and then you could take this uh, to say a host nation um, to establish say an economic, a special economic zone. And with that, you know, you get some rights for doing public administration, you deploy the technology for doing public administration over it, but it's very much within the confines of a very specific territory. And the reason why a host nation might want to do this or why they do a special economic zone in the first place is because they're expecting a higher outputs in some way, which leads to higher tax revenues from, from that region. Uh, and if you can show that it's, uh, it's potential in this case, um, then you'll get more adoption from other places. And of course, it is not inherently bound by the region that it's operating in, but it could actually be put every, uh, anywhere and everywhere. So uh, to me, like, there is definitely a peaceful path forward um, that is within the limitations and maybe allows uh, the state to become more familiar with this technology uh, while also upholding these principles uh, and defending itself um, just by virtue of, of its underlying properties and principles. One of the things that I know, Jared, it's been one of your primary intellectual occupations, um, at least for the past few months, and um, Edward mentioned a few times, is a concept of network state. And at Logos, you've created this project, you've dedicated all of these resources and time and everything else to it as an organization, as a project that will create the infrastructure for the network state. Um, and I just wanted you to go a bit more into detail, um, anything that you've not mentioned so far about Logos as this project that's dedicated to creating the infrastructure for the network state. 
Yes, I mean, the decentralized technology st uh, stack itself is like state infrastructure in a similar way that you would build out railways or roads, um, set up, you know, basic institutions and these sort of things. Um, in many ways, it's, it's uh, a fundamental policy that uh, everyone has to subscribe to. So it has to be entirely general. Uh, everyone who wants to participate in that is that instant instantation of it. Um, which creates a sort of downward pressure to prevent uh, any other policy getting into that, that would then create a contentious hard fork. Um, but then on top of this, you can actually start to create state systems. And we've kind of already talked uh, about this already, um, whether it's sort of arbitration uh, services, but you can also do forms of law enforcement um, that are maybe look a bit more like how we're used to interacting with um, car ride uh, sharing services or food delivery services. You could have basically a online citizen's watch, uh, and maybe that's attached to a rating system for people to actually deploy law, um, vigilante style law enforcement. Um, and a lot of these ideas, I, I guess, um, are reflected in sort of like an anarcho-capitalist sort of worldview. Uh, and, and while my, my sort of ideology has evolved and probably matured for, from then, there are some ideas or alternative ways of establishing these institutions that is more compatible with a, say, a decentralized technology stack. Um, and this decentralized, uh, decentralization aspect of it is, is also really important in the sense that um, it requires the explicit consent of the people to participate within that network. Uh, and it also allows it to reroute itself uh, around physical attacks. Uh, in many ways, uh, whether they are attacks on the network itself or um, attacks physically on, on some other participants. Um, it's not inherently bound to a geopolitical boundary. Uh, it demarks its own boundary of uh, politi political boundary within the net. And that affords some amazing sort of future scenarios where you may have fundamentally very different culturally homogenous communities all living within the same physical location, such as a city, uh, yet operating under fundamentally different laws. And they will still be able to interact with each other uh, because there will be, you could imagine that uh, reconciliatory laws or glue code between these different ways of life would actually be able to manifest themselves. When I... Uh... Think about you. You mentioned decentralization. There, there there's a lot of challenges uh, with the current infrastructure. Like again, we have to assess why has government failed so badly, um, and not just in one country, but in many countries. It seems they're becoming less representative uh, of what the public desires. Uh, those publics are becoming, uh, frankly, more neurotic. Uh, because they're being pressured, they're being influenced by competing interest groups to hate one another, uh, to recite sort of uh, slogans and to deem divides, uh, to sort of widen the distances uh, between themselves and, and their neighbors. Uh, in the same way that the parties uh, have been distanced, even though they're part of the same animal, at, at least in, in sort of a... Uh, dual party, which happens to be single party state, uh, like in the US, where these people agree on basically everything beyond few uh, social issues, things when it comes to 
uh, the application of violence uh, when it comes to uh, the size of the government, right? They both want to expand uh, territorially. They both want to expand financially. Uh, they just argue over which direction to expand in. Uh, and I, I think one of the problems when we look at the network uh, compared to the people is we see the influence from one beginning to bleed over onto the other. Uh, we talk about, again, how things have changed from 2013. Uh, one of the things I don't think a lot of people were expecting uh, is the public desire for censorship increasing in a lot of places. Uh, there has been a, um, I, I can't think of the word for it, uh, but a growing pressure and influence by uh, institutions and governments to convince the public that the answer to their problems, to their political divides, uh, is a growing intolerance for free expression. To say, if we just stop the other people from talking, everything will get better. Uh, that is actually a stairway to violence uh, that will ultimately uh, resolve itself in, in conflicts so that will be very costly and that will be very damaging uh, to the social, uh, national, and global order. Uh, we see that already happening in a lot of cases, uh, but or in a few cases rather. Uh, but I think the uh, the thing that we need to think about in in terms of decentralization uh, is even if we can decentralize the protocols, uh, governments are able to maintain their position today because the access to the protocols is not decentralized. What I mean by this is we don't own the infrastructure but someone else does in the United States, in the United Kingdom, uh, in Germany, in France, right? Uh, you rely upon an internet service provider. In basically every country, uh, this is true. You have to go through someone else's gateway. You have to go through someone else's wires that you are not granted a right to pass through. Uh, in the same way that it is presumed that you will have access to water, even though we don't, right? Like you have to pay the water bill uh, at your house. You have to pay the internet bill at your house. But you can go to a, a public water fountain, park, and connect. Well, in a lot of countries, you can't do that with the internet. You have to, you know, show ID or uh, associate your phone number with the gateway service or the wireless access point provider or, or whatever to connect to the network. And even in the countries where that's not happening, that's not policy today, it could be tomorrow. At any given moment, uh, governments can direct that you know, access to this website be blocked. And we think, like in the United States, that's not possible. Well, that just happened with Tornado Cash. Uh, they said this is a crime. Anybody connecting to it has violated sanctions. You know, I don't even remember the penalty, but it's something like 10 years count or something insane that uh, if you interact with the smart contract. Uh, you can't just be like, oh, well, I'll connect to the internet without them. We build ways to layer over that virtual private networks, anonymous technologies, things like Tor, like you said, uh, onion routing or whatever, uh, to try to take the naked freeway and build our own tunnel, build our own camouflage as we route down it. Uh, and that's a heck of a lot better than nothing. Um, but those can, in many places of the world, are blocked. Uh, there's a lot of network filtering going on. It's a cat and mouse game. It's never perfect. But for the average person who is not an expert, who is not a technologist, uh, those blocks can basically designate which parts of the internet they can reach 
and which parts they can't. Uh, and I, I think something that people don't talk enough about is the decentralization of access, the decentralization of infrastructure. And I don't mean software and protocols, I mean physical wires in the ground. Um, it is true that it's expensive to uh, lay infrastructure. Uh, somebody has to pay for it, it has to get there somehow. Uh, and frankly, I think these things should be done on a municipal level, a community level, uh, that wants to amortize, it's paid off, it's a public uh, good. And frankly, you know, if we were responsible for maintaining this uh, ourselves, those skill sets would become more common. Uh, it would be really ugly uh, in the interim. But, you know, even in a world where there's no more plumbing, uh, rain falls from the sky. There's, you know, water, pools, and lakes. Uh, it's not a world that we want to go back to, but there is some state where people can independently access some necessary resource. We have moved into a world where we uh, sort of presume access to the internet, uh, that you need this to exist, to get a job, to communicate, to engage in commerce, to buy anything, to uh, just function in a modern society, to go to the doctor, to get your results, whatever. Uh, but you don't have any way to access that without going through some institution, without going through some payment system, without showing some ID, without connecting something to your home address, which presumes that you have a home, or your phone, which presumes that you have a phone, uh, or you know, some way of automated electronic billing. For the majority of people, there are still some cash gateways in some countries. Uh, but we need to recognize that if we want to move beyond this world of sort of institutional control there, we need to de-institutionalize access to the network. I mean, absolutely. Like in, in uh, certainly in like uh, developed countries, there's just layers and layers of infrastructure that we depend on, and or, you know every society um, does. You know whether it's energy or water, or, you know sanitation, uh, and everything that's up on the stack. Um, an example comes to mind um, for the case you know uh, that you're outlining was probably the 2017 Catalan independence referendum, um, and. Uh, in that, you know, they, they actually deployed to their credit uh, these sort of referendum uh, forms through IPFS, uh, along with using decentralized technologies to participate. Yet, most people, uh, the average person who was participating in this, accessed IPFS through web proxies. Uh, and the Spanish government came in and uh, blocked access to these specific URLs. Uh, and made it very, very difficult for a lot of people to to participate uh, in that referendum. Having that said, um, Barcelona in particular, in Catalan, they do have, um, I think it's called Gwix, uh, which is a independent mesh net network um, of, I think, 30,000, 40,000 nodes. Uh, so it is possible to, to at least establish these sort of local networks um, for a particular region. And if it is as easy as accessing a Wi-Fi, you'll connect it to maybe a local 5G tower, assuming that you don't care about the bands that you're running on, um, that might certainly be a possibility. Um, but even that sort of like highlights another issue, right? Is that all of the hardware kind of needs to be there's another centralization factor. It's where, you know, we're very dependent on the chips that we run inside our computers and um, you're, you know better than anybody how those, uh, those can be manipulated. Um, and 
until we have very open hardware and we are able to create processes of the kind of computational capacity within a sort of local setting, uh, it, it still is another attack vector or vulnerability for being able to access uh, network-based systems. And it's really interesting that you mentioned that because previously in, in our history, we have never seen uh, sort of that chip choke point uh, being exploited as a weapon of policy. Uh, now we are for the first time. Uh, we're starting to see access to chips uh, choked off over policy disagreements. Uh, right now, it's being applied internationally. <laughs> but there is a history when you look at, for example, mass surveillance and these uh, capabilities where they would do it uh, outside the country first. They do it in the war zone. They do it in Afghanistan. They do it in Iraq. Uh, they test these capabilities. They expand them. They iterate on them. Uh, they improve them until they're reliable, until they see what they can do uh, in a place where they think laws just don't apply. And, and no one will care if they get caught, frankly. Uh, and it's hard to say, but they were right in a lot of cases. Nobody cared. Uh, if they violated the rights of everyone in Afghanistan, and they did, uh, if people you know who are not Taliban, people who are not terrorists, um, but there's there's no social connection there. There's no uh, sort of emotional connection there. These people have been othered, uh, and I think um, we underestimate how easy that othering process is. Uh, and eventually, these capabilities move from warfront to home front, and that's happened in all of our countries. Uh, capabilities and authorities uh, that were exclusively used at the very highest scale uh, for the top targets, as they became cheaper, as they became more advanced, as they became more sophisticated, uh, as they became more available, and as they became easier to use, as they became uh, just more fluent in uh, using these uh, commercial markets and commercial providers uh, comprised of employees who left government. They're formerly, they used to wear, you know, uh, sort of the uniform. Uh, then they go check out on their own, doing the same thing they did for the government, but then selling to the government. And then the government drops their contract and they start selling to other governments. Uh, and then eventually that trickles down to its own private market, some criminal market or whatever. So we see the exploit market, uh, for particularly in Israel uh, with malware as a uh, sort of uh, develop. And these things start being used everywhere. They're in the hands of every police station uh, with a significant budget. I, I think when you look at how economies work, you have to consider how property works. Where does property originate from? Why do you have a claim to something? Uh, what makes it yours? Uh, and, and how is it that you can say you own this home, this car, this stick, this rock, you know, whatever? Uh, the idea is, you know, going back to the idea of the state of nature, uh, you mix your labor with something. You invest your life into something, and that makes it yours. Well, if the government can require you to uh, transact any exchange in a currency that they control that is theirs, uh, that they can change, right? You worked your whole life, you socked your money under the mattress, uh, and then uh, in your doge, when you're retired, uh, you expect to have a certain good life. And then they inflate the currency. They, they print you know, an enormous amount of that, which reduces the value of that which you strawed your entire life uh, to save, that you were counting on, that you were planning your life around. Uh, 
it turns out that was never yours after all. The government has actually violated the right to private property in that case uh, by requiring you to invest your life into something uh, that they went invalidate. And why do they do that? Why do they print money, right? When we look historically, it's almost always to uh, permit a state of war and the perpetuation of war beyond what the economy, taxation policies, and public will uh, would support. Uh, it's prolonged unpopular and unnecessary wars, frankly, that they cannot afford. It allows the government to spend beyond its limits by spending beyond your limits. Uh, so this is, again, where the government has violated its compact with its people, with the public generally. Uh, how do you prevent them from doing that? Uh, how do you make government uh, sort of respect the, the property rights uh, that it was instituted to defend? Well, you keep them away from your money. Uh, you allow them uh, to arbitrate. You allow them to regulate, but you recognize that money is not something that belongs to anyone in the abstract sense, right? If government can create it, it's not money because money must be a reliable store of value. Uh, it must be something that will still be there tomorrow that you can count on uh, in your retirement. If they can inflate it away, um, it, it's not actually money. It's something else. It's you know a kind of token. And yeah, we can all you know make our own dog coins or whatever, uh, but that's not frankly, money. Um, not in the real sense, not in the sense that we uh, must be able to rely on. The reason we used gold throughout history uh, was government can't print gold. They can debase it. They can try to force you uh, to accept it. And they have. And that's always a government in decline. That's always a government that's trying to expand beyond its means, that's trying to expand beyond its public's means eventually. And those governments fall. They collapse, and they always have. It's a universal law. That's history. That's how it works. Uh, how do we prevent that? Because every government, in turn, be or in time, will be seduced by it. It's not a process that happens over ten years. It's a process that plays out over hundreds. Uh, the only way to protect against that is to make money neutral, uh, something that no one controls, but everyone can use. Uh, and I, I think that's the interesting thing uh, that we're looking at here. Whether it's gold, whether it's crypto, whether it's something else, uh, it is not so interesting to me uh, as the fact that it is neutral uh, and it arbitrates uh, without fear or favor against everyone, uh, whether we're talking about citizen or whether we're talking about state. Yeah. I mean, this neutrality aspect um, is certainly a... a in terms of a world reserve currency is certainly a hot topic today. Um, we're now starting to see various countries um, move away from what is considered to be the world currency today. Um, but I mean, crypto also has its own challenges. Like one of the properties of sound money that we need to implement is like this notion of fungibility, which is something that Tornado Cash was effectively implementing. Um, the, and if we don't have this fungibility, then you know, one token or coin of whatever is no longer worth the, the same kind of token, depending on the context and its history. Um, and so 
yeah, this aspect is also incredibly important, which also bolsters its um, its neutrality. Yeah, and I mean that that's the the whole point of what the government is doing. The dollar is not fungible. <laughs> People think that it is, uh, but have you ever like bought a, a money counting machine or like used one, worked at a bank, anything like that? Um, most people would answer no and so they don't know uh that the new uh like the counters that you know you give your money to the bank they go through the deposit or whatever it goes and uh sort of tells you how many bills are in it and then they they credit your deposit and that it images all the bills that go through it and it takes a little picture of all the serial numbers in it and it does optical character recognition on it as fast as that machine works and it enters them all into a little database and those little money counters have Ethernet ports on them that connect to the local network that then sends all the numbers, all the bills that were in this machine to the bank headquarters. And then these all flow upstream to the government, right? Uh, it's, of course, not being done at every 7-Eleven uh, yet, simply because it's expensive. But as these uh, capabilities become cheaper, it will. Uh, and the bottom line is the individual bills as they move through the economy are tracked. Uh, if you don't believe me, just go look uh, at like the capabilities of these money counting machines uh, today. Yeah, right. No, but I mean that's the uh, is more for the viewers. Uh, but the government doesn't want fungible money. They don't want sound money. They want controllable money. Uh, they want money that serves them. And when you see all these central bank digital currencies uh, that they're talking about, regardless of which country they're being launched in, uh, I think we just saw like a. Uh, Brazil, maybe in the last couple of days, uh, put an Ethereum smart contract up for like, you know, some kind of proof of their CBDC. Uh, and it's got like burn and move addresses and like freeze uh, sort of functions in the smart contract. Uh, and the idea is they can just take your money uh, and say, poof, it's gone. Uh, they can say, we want to credit this account with more money. Poof, it's there. <laughs> like, that's not different. Uh, than how currencies work traditionally now, uh, <laughs> except it's easier to reach uh, for them. They don't have to go into your mattress. They don't have to count your bills because they can see every bill everywhere all the time. Uh, they can track all of the tokens. Uh, and that's extraordinarily dangerous. And this is why you know I'm constantly preaching against uh, central bank digital currencies of this kind of uh, flavor design. But that's what they're all pursuing. Uh, because, you know, when you talk about cryptocurrency is going to solve all of our problems, well, you got to remember how the state is going to use these things. Because <laughs> they're going to say, okay, cryptocurrency it is, uh, but you have to use our version. Uh, you have to use our e-dollar or whatever. In the U.S., frankly, uh, extraordinarily and wonderfully, uh, does have some legislative opposition uh, to the imposition of a central bank digital currency. Uh, but a lot of other countries are racing to be the first uh, to get a big one out here because they recognize what an advantage that's going to be for them uh, to be able to track and manipulate uh, and basically spend the lives and, and fortunes uh, of everyone who interacts with their economy. Uh, and that's a very dangerous thing. That's the opposite direction of where we need to be moving, which is a more neutral uh, form of currency. If the government, you know, wants to, um, you know, uh, raise its revenues to be able to, you know, build bridges, fight a war, whatever, uh, pass a tax. 
That's what they've always done. We don't like taxes, right? Uh, but at least we have a process for it. They realize that passing taxes is a great way to lose power. And that's why we have these new uh, currency systems is because they want to tax you through the back door. <laughs> they want to spend your money without asking you, without uh, sort of giving you a vote against it. And that's why we have the inflation that we have today. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm certainly a, a proponent against uh, CBDCs myself. Uh, I definitely talk about the, the same issues. Um, and perhaps more concerning is, you know, you can go to CBDC tracker and see where all these different countries going, uh, implementing or researching these, um, these different schemes. Uh, but the IMF is also starting to look at implementing their own version, uh, which terrifies me because this would be you know, a global financial system in which if you say something wrong, like a mean tweet or something like that, you might be economically exiled everywhere on the planet, which is, that is wild to me. But um, switching gears a little bit, you know, and speaking of things that uh, people aren't necessarily aware of, um, there's sort of a complacency when it comes to encrypted content, um, you know, certainly if you're using a private instant messenger, right? Um, and, and people think that they are secure using something like perfect forward secrecy. Uh, but there's also the metadata component um, that is incredibly important here. I was wondering if you could uh, describe uh, some of the issues around metadata and how it can be used against people. Yeah, so I, I think the easiest way for people to understand metadata who aren't familiar with it is metadata just means activity records, right? Um, they don't have the content of uh, every communication that happened today. Think of it as a private eye following you around from morning to night. Uh, they see when you woke up uh, because you know they they see your phone become active on the network. They presume your phone is perfectly encrypted. Uh, they don't see what it's connecting to, but they know this is the phone bill that you pay. You know, here's when it spikes in the morning. You're downloading your emails. You're looking at YouTube videos. You're you know, checking whatever social networks you use, uh, that person's no longer sleeping. Um, then they see you leave your home, right? Uh, you drive in your car, you get on the bus, whatever. Uh, where do you go? Do you work? Uh, do you go to the cafe? You meet with someone. Uh, they see that you met this person. They can follow that person home. They can see where that person uh, went. They can identify that person pretty easily because of billing records, you know, home addresses, whatever. Uh, uh, they don't go in the cafe to hear everything uh, that you say because you might notice that you're being followed, right? They, they do it from a distance. Uh, but step by step, just by observing you, just by seeing your movements, just by seeing your associations, just by seeing your affiliations, do you go to law, you know, library and things like that? Well, which library? Uh, can they see that you connect to a certain website because the internet address of that website? Yeah, they can. Maybe they didn't see the exact articles that you downloaded, uh, but they know your politics based on whether you're reading the Wall Street Journal or whether you're reading the New York Times or whether you're reading, you know, Zero Hedge or something else entirely. Uh, I think... Uh, when you think of it in terms of activity records, it becomes much more clear. Uh, metadata is creating a picture of uh, your movements, of your associations, of your affiliations. Uh, and from this, they try to, to basically pad out the permanent record of your life. Uh, it's a index of your life, right? More so 
uh, than the compendium of everything that you said in your messages. Uh, to be able to, when you're using an encrypted message, tell what you're actually saying, they have to hack your phone or the phone of the person that you're communicating with, because that's where the two communications are resident, unless it's something like Google, where it's not real encryption, but Google has a copy too, and then they just ask Google you know, to, to cough it up. Um, but the idea is, even without the content, uh, they can tell a significant amount about who you are, what you're doing, what you're interested in. Uh, they reduce your privacy significantly, even though it's presumed that you have no privacy interest, and this is under the law, at least in the United States, in your metadata, uh, particularly if these records are held by third-party companies, your cell phone company, your bank, anything like that. Uh, the government can go to it with a much lower legal standard and get these under the so-called third-party doctrine. They say these are not your records, so you don't have an interest in them. You can't uh, sort of defend against it using a Fourth Amendment claim. They say these records belong to the company, even if they're about you. And that's one of the things in law that we really need to change in order to make things better. Um, one of the other things that I caution people against, just to sort of wrap things up as we uh, head into the end of the conversations here, one of the most immediate threats that we're facing in terms of policy and government today, uh, in the UK specifically, the uh, EU, a little bit later this year, um, their legislatures are trying very, very, very hard. And it's very serious. You should not underestimate them. Uh, to force companies to build uh, backdoors into their encryption schemes, uh, to allow them, the government goes to them with a warrant to say, to protect the children, to save the puppies, uh, these companies must be able to provide them an unencrypted copy of any uh, sort of text or communication that the government demands. Uh, there is no way to do this and maintain a secure encryption scheme. Governments know this. Uh, they're simply doing this because they want to be able to get to any communication anywhere. Uh, and they're going to go after big companies that have a lot of money and basically scare them away from providing uh, truly uh, reliable encrypted uh, communication systems. Instead, get them to provide these uh, lower backdoor versions. Then they also want to get, uh, of course, the uh, sort of on-device scanning. Uh, Apple tried to... Uh, sort of shim into an iOS update, uh, I think almost two years ago now, uh, and failed when everybody bit their face off because it was a horrific idea. Uh, but they're going to try to push that through legislatures since they couldn't get through the back door of just getting a company uh, do it. We need to be uh, very much on guard against that. And people need to be starting to uh, form movements right now. Uh, sort of associations, talk to your friends so that uh, when you see these things in the news, uh, you can absolutely blow up the phones of your representatives. Uh, or if that doesn't work, uh, find a new solution around it. Because <laughs> right now we are in a, a very limited software ecosystem. You're either using a, a Google phone or an Apple phone uh, for the vast majority of people. Uh, and if those two companies say, okay, well, <laughs> these governments can do anything for anyone. So um, this is a question uh, to both of you. Uh, this is about thinking ahead. Um, what are the challenges? What are the opportunities when it comes to our fundamental freedoms? We covered quite a lot, um, but I want to hear it from both of you. But before doing that, I just want to remind you of something that Julian Assange mentioned in his 2012 book, Cypherpunks, Freedom and the Future of the Internet. He famously said 
that this is the last three generation, right? Looking ahead, what do we need to do that in a few years time, um, imagine we're redoing this conversation. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? What do we have to do to make sure that that generation was not the last free generation and future generations will also be free? Jared, let's start with you. Uh, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you've, you've mentioned that um, the policies that are being implemented and the actions that are being taken are not popular with the general people. Um, yet, uh, in many ways, they feel kind of disempowered. Um, and another fear of mine is that um, maybe the situation could even be normalized, if not this generation, but in another generation. And we are constantly distracted through media that we might not even have, have enough attention to kind of place in the correct directions. Uh, so for me, um, while we can work on the technology, the ones who understand it, what really matters is kind of growing the culture um, and understanding and giving the tools uh, and letting them understand that like there is actually another way um, that can be done. And if it can be better, then it becomes a known brainer. But the other aspect which you've also alluded to is the usability and the accessibility. Uh, these are also other fronts that need to happen, uh, need to be moved forward. Um, and it might take a decade or two if we have that much borrowed time, but uh, it's definitely possible. You know, I, I think about that uh, Assange idea, and it, it's interesting to me because, you know, one of the things about getting older is you realize how much you didn't know uh, when you were younger that you thought you didn't know. Uh, and you see more and more examples. And I think when we look back through history, when we look back even through our history, uh, we have to ask ourselves, were we free? Have we been free? Um, were we born free? Uh, is this a free system? Is it a fair system? Is it what we were taught in school? <laughs> and I think that's actually a much more open uh, and controversial question uh, than we presume it to be. People will say, yeah, we're a free country. Uh, people say it uh, with the frequency that they did when we were younger, uh, which is what I think Assange is keying on. The internet is not free today in the way it was when we were younger. Uh, we are being made slaves to a past through that uh, permanent record in the same way that we were becoming subjects of our government rather than partners to our government. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea that governments are subordinate to us is the uh, sort of found idea of democracy and democratic representation. Uh, but how long has that stayed the case, in fact, under any democratic system? Right? When you look at France, which has the longest democratic tradition uh, that actually has a meaningful protest movement, uh, how responsive is that government, is the Macron government right now today, uh, to the public desire, to the public will? Um, does that mean we're not free uh, in final terms? Does that mean uh, we will be less free in the next uh, term? Uh, do trends proceed predictably in all cases? I don't think so. And that's where the hope comes from. 
Uh, because yes, if you look at the world today, uh, if you look at the direction of policy, uh, governments that we consider to be classically or we are taught that are open and liberal societies are becoming more authoritarian. They're becoming more closed off. Uh, they're passing more laws with stricter penalties uh, because they are struggling with scale in the same ways that uh, sort of protocols and process builders and technology are. The reason that you can't contact anybody when your Gmail account gets locked is because they don't want to pay that many people to deal with all the complaints. Uh, it's inefficient. So they simply go, well, we'll just change the process. So you go through an automated appeals process. And if the machine you know, can't unlock your account uh, because the IP address you're appealing from isn't one that's in its record, or you don't know what day you registered your Gmail account 15 years ago or something like that, uh, or, uh, you know, Six months later, it gets to a human reviewer, and the human reviewer uh, who spends five seconds on the appeal uh, does agree with you. You're out of luck. There is no recourse, right? Well, governments are trying to do the same thing. Uh, institutions are trying to do the same thing. Uh, Google is trying to govern in the same way that states do, uh, sort of their domain, where they have a very few, relative to the broader public, uh, number of officials as it were, uh, people who can act and exercise official authority, uh, and a very large number uh, of people that they serve uh, in reality who serve them, uh, but they like to think that they're serving uh, their, their subjects or customers, as it were. And the customers are, in fact, ad companies, not the users. Uh, but the idea is that they're becoming more authoritarian, they're becoming more restrictive, they're becoming more efficient as they are, which means we have fewer avenues, which means we have fewer recourses. Uh, we're becoming more quantified in our daily lives. We're becoming observed. We're becoming tracked. We're becoming logged uh, in more ways. As you walk down the street, uh, your cell phone is leaving records. Every cell phone tower that passes, uh, those records are in the hands of public companies uh, that hold them basically forever. Uh, they monetize them. They trade them. They sell them. They report them. Uh, but there's also the license plate on your car that is now photographed by uh, automatic number plate recognition uh, algorithms that are baked into the silicon of the cameras. You don't even have to pay extra for this. It's just in the camera. Um, you can look this up. They're, they're available, right? You can get a license plate reading camera uh, on Amazon You know, tonight. Uh, it can also do human detection. It can also do vehicle detection. It's made by Chinese companies. Uh, like uh, Hike Tech and Dahua. Uh, and they're going to expand more and more of uh, these capabilities. As the capabilities become possible, their implementations become practical on a broader level. And so as the individual loses privacy, as we discussed at the very beginning of this conversation, uh, they lose power. This means if you look at the direction of the future, which is what Assange was reflecting on, uh, you see a disempowered public, which means you have disempowered individuals, which means you have a loss of freedom. You have loss of agency. You don't have the ability to act and influence the world around you. You are instead being influenced. You are being shaped. You are being nudged. You are being judged. Uh, as we see the rise of machine intelligence and the development of that, which is you know accelerating, frankly, uh, even though I, I don't think the... Uh, <laughs> 
scariest uh, voices in the, the field there are the most accurate. It is true that we see uh, significant advantages happening there very rapidly, uh, which means machines are going to be able to make their own judgments based on very loose directives uh, from the people over them uh, to decide if you match a certain profile, if you match a certain activity, if you match the detection algorithms, just like it categorizes an image that it sees as a license plate, as a vehicle, as a person, uh, it can say you are a supporter, you are a valuable customer, you are a vagrant, you are somebody they don't want there. Uh, these judgments are going to pile up, uh, and we're going to be surrounded by a world of gates uh, that we are not allowed to pass through without permissions. Uh, who is granting permissions? Well, these gatekeepers. Uh, we were not born into a world of the same number of gates. There were still gates, there were still borders, there were still boundaries, uh, there were still territories that we could not pass freely through, like fields in the state of nature. Uh, but does it mean that there were fewer gates uh, that we were born free? No, uh, we, were, we still were limited in the same way. The question is, will we learn collectively uh, to change the construction of these gates where they're allowed? Will we limit them? Uh, will we not be able to? Will they be constructed regardless? Will we live in these world of doors that we don't control? And if so, uh, will we teach the ways and methods to our children to simply climb over them? Because that's the interesting part about human nature, regardless of the laws, regardless of the systems that we're born into, regardless of the methods of sophistication or capabilities of these systems of control that are wrapped around us, we learn, uh, even if you have no lawful authority, uh, you see a camera on a pole, you have a stick, you have a solution. Um, you have to figure out how to mitigate the consequences of that, right? Uh, because, of course, uh, we are being judged by these systems. But ultimately, today at least, and I think in the immediate generation follows, the generation of my children who are sleeping downstairs right now, uh, we will still have more capability than the machines if we put our minds to it. We have to develop our capabilities. We can't sleepwalk into the future or we will be controlled by it. Uh, <laughs> but so long as there is a wall, I promise you we will find a way to build a ladder. Um, and that's why we're all here today. That, that's what this conversation is about. Uh, we need not just to build ladders, but to tear down walls.